welcome to another DBSA podcast. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and with me is Jane Litt from Dear Author. Today, we are talking about a bunch of different things. We talk about when we give up on a book, what price points might influence our decision to stop reading or to keep reading. We talk about new adult, whether it's a permanent genre and how much it has in common with Harlequin Presents and with YA. And we also talk a little bit about what we're reading, what we liked and what we didn't. This podcast is brought to you by Intermix. They are the publishers of a new contemporary romance called Unexpectedly Yours by Jeannie Moon. I'll have more information about the book after the podcast. And now let's go talk about romance novels because that's what we're here to do. On with the podcast. I am trying to read a book that really is not holding my interest and I'm never sure when to give up when I want to I want to like the book I want it to become something interesting and I'm having a very hard time keeping keep to keep going or just to give up and this makes me wonder what made you give up on milk bitch how'd you not see that through I just uh I just couldn't go on (laughs) what makes you give up on a book oh it varies Probably uh, it depends on the price, whether I got it for review and I told someone I would read it, um, whether it was recommended to me by someone else. A lot of books I'll just uh, nix in the first chapter. If you nix something in the first chapter, I usually try to read at least two or three. Although lately I've, uh, you're, you know what, lately you're right. I have been abandoning a lot of books after the first chapter. I've been taking a lot more um, email pitches and then just buying the book if it's less than $3 rather than getting it from the author. I become less and less patient with punctuation and editing and stupid characters. I can't stick it out for stupid characters. When you give up on a book, is there a point where you make yourself keep reading or do you just sort of say, no, I'm done? Do you ever feel a sense like you have to keep going past a certain percentage or past a certain point? Or do you just sort of say, nope, this isn't for me and you're done? How long, how soon can you tell that a book isn't for you? In the first chapter. Always the first chapter. Well, I mean, this is a time time management sort of thing. I want to read books that I enjoy. And if I'm not enjoying it in the first chapter, why would I force myself to read on when I have thousands of other books to go to? I mean, with self-publishing, there's probably 5,000 books released a month. No, I was thinking without self-publishing. With the self-publishing releases, I can't actually count that high, unfortunately. Well, from traditional publishing with Harlequin, I think the, the to- it's around three to 400 books. That's so what there's I just, thought. There's a so lot. there's just no possible way. I do buy a lot of 99-cent books because most of the time, self-published authors will reduce the price to their books. So I've not bought books at $3.99 anymore. I've been burned too many times. So, um, in fact, there are a couple times just in this last, like, three weeks, I bought a book for $3.99. And the author had, like, days later, because I guess she was panicking that um, she wasn't at where she wanted to be or whatever. So I returned that book for uh, twice. Um and rebought it at 99 cents. So most of the time in self-published authors, I won't buy any more at anything but 99 cents. Unless it's an established self-published author who I don't believe is going to discount, um, like Kit Roca or um, Kristen Ashley when she self-publishes or um, other authors that I feel are going to be there and not change their prices immediately. Otherwise, I'll just wait 
Um, so yeah, I do buy a lot of 99 cent books, um, but th- I, they're not erotica books. I have contemporary. Yeah, contemporary. Some some are paranormal, um, but most of the time they're contemporary. Did you, have you noticed the um, the number of publishers doing doing that exact same thing? They'll release a book and then two or three weeks later, it's ninety nine cents. Yeah, Har- <clears throat> Harper Collins is a big offender of that. Like um, Cora Carmack's books, like she has a new one out, and I'm just waiting for it to drop to like ninety nine <laughs> cents or dollar ninety nine because I know it will be that price soon. And Random House did it too with um, Rachel Van Dyken's The Wager. She's not a random house. She's with Forever. Sorry, you're right. Sorry, Grand Central. Yeah, the, they they do that too. And I mean, that that was a. I think that the Rachel Van Dyken story is really interesting from a pricing standpoint because her first book, not her first book, it was like her 20th book or whatever, The Bet, sold, I don't know what I heard, like 120,000 copies, but it was sold at 99 cents. So then she got this major deal, which I believe is seven figures. Good gracious. For two books or three book three books. So then they released this follow up, the uh wager, wager. Yeah, at yeah. two ninety nine. And it I think didn't reach higher than um sixty on the Kindle list. I don't even know. I don't think it made it onto the New York Times bestseller list even. Ouch. And then, so then, like um, a week later, they dropped the price. Two weeks later, they dropped the price to ninety nine cents. And she's now like in the top twenty, but the the bet stayed in the top was like number one for a couple weeks. And that was all self published. The the bet the, the was. bet was right. So um, I think a lot of people buy books at ninety nine cents, don't read them, or read them and don't like them, and then don't ever come back for a second helpings. Not even at two ninety nine. No, two ninety nine is. It's kind of it's it's weird. I noticed this this price problem for me this weekend because I have an Android and I use a particular Twitter app called Tweetcaster and lately it has been getting slower and slower and slower and it takes forever to load and it was starting to piss me off. This is probably because my phone is two years old and now I need to get a new one. So I was looking for other Twitter apps and there was one called it's either Jane Janeter or Jane Etter or it's Jane Tur. It was $6 for an app, and I struggled so hard with paying 6 bucks for an app, even though it's an app that I will use every day, lots and lots of times. I could not get over $6 for an app, and it was the same sort of feeling like you've got to be freaking kidding me for $6 for an ebook that's brand new or from an author that I've never heard of. Like, that's ridiculous. I'm not paying $6. I have noticed myself having the same reaction to a lot of the very popular contemporary and new adults priced higher than two ninety nine or three ninety nine. Like, there's no freaking way unless it's an author who is absolutely incredible. I don't see that getting bought. I don't see a big price difference between two ninety nine and ninety nine cents. I mean, I was really surprised that the follow up book at two ninety nine didn't do better. Well, I mean, I see a difference between ninety nine do- cents and six dollars, but yes, I don't definitely. see a difference between. A huge difference between two ninety nine and ninety nine. If you like the author, I mean, right. this has a this is an author that sold you know six hundred thousands of copies of her of the first book in that series. That people wouldn't come back at two ninety nine is shocking to me. 
Do you have any theories as to why that was? Yeah, because people didn't like the first one or they never read the first one. So people bought it because it was being talked about but never read it and had no reason to go back and buy number two even though they bought number one. Correct. So it's an audience that's not actually reading, just buying. Right. Well, that's not worth very much now, is it? I mean, that's my best guess. That's a pretty good guess, actually. Does a book at 99 cents influence when you stop reading? Like, are, do you, are you more or less likely to stop reading it if it's 99 cents versus a different price? Um, not really. I mean, it depends on if I paid $8.99 for it. Um, I might try to finish it versus the 99, but there's like no movement, no elasticity between 99 and like 399. It's all the same in your perspective? Yeah. I mean, I, I won't buy a, um, a lot of unknown self-published authors at 399 just because books get discounted immediately. Like, um, uh, Tijan, for example, she released her book at 399 Four days later, she drops the price to 99 cents. Uh, Harper Sloan did that as well. Not as soon. I think it was a couple weeks. Um, another author, Skyla Maddie, uh, not even 30 days after her book was released, she dropped it to 99 cents. So <clears throat> I am not going to buy these unknown authors at 399 anymore. I'm just getting burned. And a lot of times, you know, I'll buy at 99 cents and I am not reading right away. I'm <coughs> hoarding the book and I'll read it some time later. It makes me think about the the push to pre-order. There's still a few um, pieces of email that I would get from publishers. We're really trying to promote the pre-order. Yet the pre-order is $3.99 and the post-publication post drop is $99. Why not do a $0.99 cent pre-order more often? Does that not get people's attention? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I think that they drop it because they hope at $2.99 people will come and buy. I mean, um, Forever also has Jessica Sorensen, and they sell her all of her books at $2.99, or most of her books at $2.99, and she's been pretty successful for them. I think every book that she's published has made the times for them and <clears throat> at $2.99. So I think that they hope that Rachel Van Dyken would have the same experience. I think now, you know, you run the danger of her being a 99-cent author. You just Ouch. wait long enough, and that price will drop. And eventually it'll be 99 cents, and you don't have to pay full retail. Sort of like if it's in a store and it, there's lots of it, you can come back in a couple weeks, it'll be on sale. That's a, really, that's a really bizarre problem, that you pay all this money for an author who then doesn't replicate what they did before. Maybe if they had put it on sale for 99 cents, but, I mean, you can't earn back a seven-figure advance at a 99 cents. No, you know, you really can't. Although, can you earn back a, a seven-figure seven advance without going to a hardcover? I mean, it seems like the profit margin on <clears throat> anything but a hardcover is so low, there's no hope of earning that back. Well, on a trade, you could. I mean... Trade, yes, <clears throat> that's true. All of these books are published as trade and print, so the hope is that it has a... You, you know, if 100,000 some people are buying it in digital, why can't you assume that you know, a third of those people are going to buy it and print. Although to earn back a 300000 I mean, I don't know what she got. She said she had a, or the publisher's lunch said she had a major deal. Is that, that's seven figures, right? I believe so. So I think it was a three book, seven figure deal. So let's assume for the sake of argument, it's $350,000. Um, I think book. you have to, yeah, I think you have to sell a hundred thousand print to make that back. That's astonishing. And, you know, 
you'd have to be to the level of like Jamie McGuire's beautiful disaster, I think, to to make back that. Well, probably not that big, but still pretty big. Yeah. Do you think new adult is a is a permanent genre? Yeah, I I do. I don't think it's going to be as um, big as it is right now in a few years. Mm-hmm. But I I think it's here to stay for sure. I can't help but wonder if there will come a sort of emotional exhaustion with new adult because. What seems from my perspective, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, which tends to happen often in this podcast, um, what seems to be extremely popular is it is seriously emotional reads. Ugly Cry, New Adult, is more popular than non-Ugly Cry, New Adult. And it also seems like publishers are labeling things that are New Adult that I don't think match audience expectations of what New Adult is. But I wonder if if what is being craved and what is being bought in New Adult is the emotionally wrenching ugly cry books, if there's just going to be emotional exhaustion and people are going to get over having that experience, or if people really will continue to read books that make them feel incredible amounts of emotion. Because these writers are really talented at writing down stuff that makes you ugly cry. How long have Harlequin Presents been in business? I don't think the, I don't think of those as ugly cry books, though. They're high a angst books. I've never that, see. That's really interesting. I've never thought of the presents as high angst. I think of super romance as ugly cry. I have always thought of presents as mostly opulence and wealth with minor problems. And what I liked so much about the books that were written by authors who I gravitate towards in presents is that they did present real emotion, no pun intended, that they did incorporate real emotion in their books. And I had to give up on reading most of Harlequin presents because there wasn't any, even though the expectation was there, I wasn't finding it. The only, there are very few writers in Harlequin presents where I actually expect genuine emotion and not, um, sort of a wooden catalog of wealth options and very little emotion. Well, I guess I disagree with you. I'm shocked. Oh my God. Really? For one, you're conflating real emotion with uh, whatever you term real emotion. Uh, Real emotion is your response to it. So what you deem real emotion um, isn't the same as what are the issues that are being discussed in the books. That determines whether it's an angsty book or not, not whether you you react positively to it because you don't like new adults so i would have to argue that the real emotion um that you like you're not finding a new adult either not actually the case what i don't like about new adult is the repetitiveness of no one makes it out of adolescence alive and that there's this incredible gaping misery that i don't find satisfactorily acknowledged and dealt with by the end of the book like the the ones that I have read, and there's nowhere near as many as you, so my sampling is limited. The characters have experienced a tremendous emotional and physical problem, usually assault. And the hero's magic wang and attention does a lot to mitigate all of the emotional damage that she feels. And the journey towards healing in my opinion, is not always complete given the amount of angst and emotion that was present in the beginning. Do you follow what I'm saying? I do, but if you look at Harlequin Presents, you have a very imperiled woman. She's poor. She's um, in uh, desperate circumstances. 
um, <clears throat> she has nowhere to turn and the man comes along and solves all her problems. I mean, this is the same. I see there's very little daylight between a Harlequin Presents and a new adult. And that's why I think new adult will always be here. Maybe not as popular, but this will have an enduring impact. Now, I don't think that all of the books in new adult are dark or angsty like you have um, suggested. Um, I think the books that have, uh, for example, a Beautiful Disaster, the heroine in that book was not assaulted. She did not have any big dramatic character arc. Um, the focus on new adult really is the male characters. I feel like the female character could be a wooden spoon. And uh, as long as the male characters were <clears throat> com uh, compelling, that uh, the story would be successful. <laughs> a wooden spoon. <laughs> okay, that's really funny. <laughs> So, I mean, I, I just don't see a lot of daylight. I think that the same emotional hit that you get in these um, downtrodden, uh, terrorized Harlequin Presents heroines who are being blackmailed and um, uh, whatnot into having affairs with these awful men are the same type of thing that you're getting from many of the new adult books. So that there is a sort of a recasting of what you're what you're saying is there's sort of a recasting of Harlequin Presents in New Adult, less wealth, different issues, younger people, and not the opulent and faraway settings. Yeah, I don't think you see the opulence, but there's certainly a lot of wealthy kids. I yes. mean, there's but it's it's a totally different portrayal of wealth. Yes. But I, I don't, I don't see. Um, everyone seems to be pretty financially secure in these new adult books. They come from wealthy. At least one of the members of the uh, stories come from wealthy families. Or it, they have enough money that it's not a large concern. Correct. But I mean, again, I think that you're focusing on a certain number of books that have that sort of. You know, I think Jessica Sorensen, for example, has that sort of appeal, but I don't see that in all of the other books that I've read. In fact, I try to avoid those books just because that is kind of tiresome. But to say that a, um, a certain subgenre is going to be not written about in a few years because the tropes are worn uh, is disproved by romance existing for 40 years <laughs> i agree with you there <laughs> my point for the new adult was not that the tropes would be worn but that the level of emotional um experience would be exhausting for readers and they would eventually turn to something else but you know i could be wrong about that because you're right there are a lot of readers who go back for those same tropes and that same emotional familiarity <clears throat> i'm sure that as with anything people will get tired and move on to something new I mean, that's what happened with the Regency romances. That's what happens with um, the vampires. You know, there's a period of huge uh, popularity and then it wanes, but that doesn't mean that, that it disappears entirely. No, that's absolutely true. I don't think, NA, I don't think New Adult is going to disappear. Um, what I find interesting is the way in which readers talk about that genre versus authors talking about that genre. And what I think is most fascinating about New Adult is that it is... It seems to be reader and author created, that the authors who write it 
and the readers who enjoy it are the ones that are creating it as a genre and make and and creating it as an actual acknowledged space. I I, I see more similarities between Chicklet and New Adult as well, probably more than you do. I think New Adult is the one of the heirs of Chicklet, or it has has a great number of similarities to Chicklet as well. I I think New Adult has come out of YA because most of these authors are very young and come out of uh, YA readership. Do you think that there is an expectation among readers of New Adult that the author is the same age as the characters or close in age to the characters? Do you think that's part of the sales point between the authors and the readers? I have no idea. Because one of the things that was shocking to me, and I, don't, and I was surprised that I was surprised, but in the elevators at RWA this year, there was a huge sticker banner from HarperCollins about their new, new adult authors. And then one of them was Cora Carmack, and her bio is something like, she's a 20-something writer who likes to write about 20-something characters, positioning herself as the same as her books. I wondered if there was an expectation that new adult authors are similar in age or similar in recent experience to the characters in the books that they're writing them and then there's this sort of sort of an endorsement of being the same age have you ever noticed that no no and i think too Kara Kara carmack is also an author who's had a lot of success in new adult who has no assault uh heroines her books are lighthearted and um (laughs) humorous yes that is also true but um no i think that Publicists and are always looking for a hook, and so if you have a picture, I guess my question is, are they doing that any more than they're for new adult than they are for anything else? I mean, uh, Kristen Higgin is, is she um, not positioned to be quirky and funny just like her books? That's true. I, mean, I think that they try to do, <clears throat> they try to make the author bio as relatable and interesting as possible to the audience that they're trying to reach. I don't think that's um, specific to new adult. I think that's just publicity and marketing. (laughs) Yes, but by all means, don't make the character in the book a romance author because that never goes well for either of us. I I, I think you were the one who said that that always feels like they're writing themselves into the book and it's just not pleasant. Do you have a few minutes to talk about what you're reading right now? Oh, sure. So I read, for some reason... This terrible book called Enraptured um, by Alana Chardonnay, and it was free. And um, and you definitely don't want to pay for this because it's riddled with errors. Apparently, it was um, published free on Wattpad. It, it's pretty terrible. Um, what the the hero is a owns a nightclub and is also going to school a uh, college um, and he is in one of this girl's classes because it's a quote unquote prerequisite for law which uh, does not exist but whatever he wants to be a lawyer that's mentioned I think twice and never again <laughs> uh, because obviously he doesn't plan to be a lawyer because there's no such thing as prerequisite for law um but yeah, I don't know why I read this book. Don't read it, anybody. Well, okay. I mean, you, sh- you can download it. It's free. <laughs> don't read it, but it's free? Yeah. Was it the errors of the story that bothered you more? I mean, it's just kind of both. There's a ton of errors. 
Um, it really makes no sense. I, the heroine loses her family. She's in school. And the beginning is all about her being grief-stricken. But none of the rest of the book is about her being grief-stricken. The rest of the book, and I kind of had, I, the reason I kept reading it was because I had heard that the hero cheated on the heroine later in the book, and I kind of just wanted to see how that was handled. Um, I don't know. It, I can't. I don't really have any explanation for why I actually finished this book, although I, I, I did do um, some skimming. Um, <laughs> I have no explanation as to why I finished this. <laughs> it's one of the funniest endorsements. <laughs> this is what I have to say about it. It's free. <laughs> So I read, I read a review on Goodreads and I still can't find it. I want to go back and quote it where the, where the, where the review was, this book made me think, well, this was a book. Like, that's it. I don't know why I finished it. It was right up there with excellent endorsements. Okay. I read the beginning of after it was a daily, it was a deal that I had talked about by Jennifer Castle. Um, it was like two ninety nine or something. Tamara Weber on her Goodreads had made a really strong statement about how moving it was. It was about a girl who's, um, and this is a young adult book um, published by HarperCollins. Female protagonist lost her family. See, these are authors that come out of young adult. <laughs> lost her family in a car accident. Um, on Thanksgiving or something. No, not Thanksgiving. It was a Jewish holiday, and I can't remember which what it was. Russia, anyway, Yom Kippur, Passover. Yeah, I don't know one of those ones. Yep. And so the book is all about her grief and all about getting over her grief and um, how people treat her differently. Um, particularly one boy that she likes uh he keeps calling her a survivor and she doesn't think she's she doesn't want to be liked for that that's very strange for her and um the the true romance is between her and her, david who is um whose father was driving the car uh that uh killed his mother and her two parents and a sibling and so it's really a story about grief. I thought that was pretty good. Um, what else did I read? I started The Flamethrowers, which is another daily deal. I think it won like the Pulitzer Prize or something. It's actually really good. If it's still on sale, I highly recommend getting it. I'm only like 18% in, but you can just tell by the writing. It's good writing. I just bought a book called Audrey Waite by Robin Benway. Uh, a Twitter user V Dow had been talking about it, and for some reason, I had a forty-five dollar credit at the Sony Reader Store. Did you ever figure out why that happened? I don't know why it happened. I just I got an email the other day saying, "By the way, you have forty-five dollars in your um, Sony Reader account," and I'm like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> I don't know where it came from. What, did you didn't you used to buy Sony Bookstore gift cards at Target or something? Wasn't there a Target deal that had to do with Sony Bookstore? Yeah, but that was like years ago. And I had already used that all up. I have been known to find gift cards for stores that don't exist anymore because I keep them and I don't spend them. So it could easily happen to me. But hey, free money at Sony Books is not bad. So this book was expensive. It was eight ninety nine. Holy crap. I, 
I started reading it. It's cute. I don't know if it's worth $8.99. <laughs> what else? Um, I bought Sweet Home by Tilly Cole. I haven't read it yet. I started Until November and Phoenix, neither of which I finished. Although I keep going back to Until November. Um, I think if you forego the fact that there's like not even insta-love, but if there's something faster than insta-love. Because <laughs> the story itself, the characters themselves aren't bad, but the setup is just so improbable and stupid. It makes me angry. But I keep going back because I hope to finish it someday. Maybe today will be the day. Who knows? <laughs> now I'm stuck on wondering what is faster than insta-love. Whatever it is, it's this is what happens in Until November. What's that thing where the, the uh, Hadrian Collider love? Where you smash atoms together? <laughs> yes, smash atoms together. Smash atom love. Oh, my Smoosh. Lord. I've reread portions of the lizard, lizard book. You seem to be you seem to be proselytizing the lizard. Like, whoa, I see so many more people talking about it. I know. I, I'm thrilled. I don't think I've talked about this. Kelly Jameson's Rhythm of Three. This is a sequel to her first story, which I don't remember. And I liked it a lot. It, it's, um, the first story is how the three of them get together into a committed menage. And this story talks about all the problems they have actually being in the committed menage, which I really liked because I think that that's a portion of a story that's rarely told, even though that's a really popular uh, trope. Uh, in erotic romance. And it's kind of funny because I think I wrote on my Goodreads review that I was really uninterested in the sex in the story, um, which is probably <laughs> why I stopped buying erotic romance because the sex scenes are just kind of ridiculous to me in, anymore. And I'm yes. really reading for the story. And so I wish that there was more story and less sex um, in this book, even though it is an erotic romance. So I'm probably the only one who would complain about that in regards to this book. But I liked it because I felt like the three of them had a lot of issues to work through in um, um, making their relationship work, coming out to their family and friends, and how they were going to negotiate even th small things like who was going to pay for what, because one of the characters was much wealthier, one of the male characters was much wealthier than the other two, and he kind of wanted to buy and buy things like a bigger place and so forth and the other guy is kind of the dominant in the relationship and so that was really difficult for him because he kind of felt like it was um, impinging on his manhood and he was already having trouble dealing with the fact that he was bisexual so I thought that those issues were interesting and I felt like Jameson could have even gone farther and use the space that she used to the sex scenes to do more exploration of their um, non-sexual relationship because that was the easy part. So have you started anything that you've enjoyed or has it mostly been a, one after another of, uh, no, thank you. Yeah. Oh, I also bought the Yarn Harlot, which was on sale, and that's actually pretty interesting. It looks like I'm reading like four books at the same time right now. Ooh, a buffet. Ooh, buffet. Nothing good comes of me buffeting books like that. I had to read The Kind of Friends We Used to Be for um, my In Real Life book club. Is this the mother-daughter book club? Mm-hmm. What did you think of that? Yeah, it was okay. It wasn't one of the better books that we've read for the book club. Oh, I read 
a good portion of Willie, Willing Captive by Bell Aurora, which I thought was terrible. <laughs> I mean, it's poorly edited and it didn't make any sense. I hate that. Like the yeah. book where the hero is like, you know, there's a rule at our university why we can't be together. But rather than tell you, I'm going to go enlist in Afghanistan for a six month tour. Bye. Um, yeah, and that's so easy. Uh, <laughs> I know. I also read Harper Cage's uh, or Harper Sloan's Cage, which I thought was bad and and offensive. Oh, that's always fun. Why was it offensive? Well, she has a gay character in there, and he's he's there for comic relief. And I hate when they use like an other for comic relief. So he's the sassy gay best friend. The sassiest gay best friend. <laughs> oh, that's always terrific. He wears tight clothes, minces around, paints people with glitter. Oh, of course. I just felt like, you know, oh, please. He's a glitter queen. <laughs> I, just, I don't know. I just thought that that representation was offensive. Oh, gosh. It's, it's your only gay character and you're making him a, you're making him a comedic caricature. Yeah, that's sort of like the 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 wise older character of color, the sassy, glittery, super comedic bar- best friend who is gay. Like you see, that's a that's tired. That's very tired. Now I've been told by someone that she that that character is going to get their own romance, but just the it, it, this character appears only twice in the entire book. And he has nothing, absolutely zero, to do with the actual romance. Terrific. Like, I don't even know of any kid that would stand outside as people are coming into their place of business and throw glitter on them. <laughs> I mean, the <laughs> glitter bomb is actually a thing, but it's done in protest. <laughs> he throws glitter on people as they're going to work, like, as a thing, just randomly? Like, well, it's Glitter Day. All these big macho security guards, because I think her thing is something, they have a security company. And so as they're walking into their security company, he throws glitter on the big Marines. Nice. That that will never end well, throwing glitter on uh, Marines. I don't think that's something that is going to uh, create a fun situation for anyone. Anyway, I didn't like that. Shocking. (laughs) <laughs> but now I know what to get you for the holidays. Glitter. I actually hate glitter. That stuff is like you can never get it off. No, it sticks to you. It bonds to your skin. You have to use talcum powder to get it off, and then you're covered with talcum powder. I'm having much the same problem in terms of starting books and then having to abandon them or just stop reading them because either they aren't holding my interest or I'm getting so angry that I can no longer read the book objectively and find myself starting to not hate read, but anger read. Like, for example, I started a contemporary called Here Comes Trouble by Erin Kern, and it's about a young woman who is a waitress whose father is um, an ex-con and a really kind of horrible person who I think he's been involved in petty theft and larger theft that he went to jail for. And when the story opens, the FBI shows up on her porch looking for her dad because he listed her home as his address. And she's like, no, he's not here because I don't like him. And then she goes into work and she's a a waitress at a restaurant and she's got the hots for her boss who got her the job, but they've known each other forever. And then a bunch of stuff starts happening. And I had the hardest time reconciling the heroine's behavior. Like her 
mother had abandoned her when she was very young to her piece of crap father. And a young woman shows up on the porch and says, I'm your half sister and here's an envelope. And it's got a really, really big check in it, which solves all of your monetary problems. Here you go. And the heroine's like, oh, okay. Well, the heroine has monetary problems because her she lived with her grandfather and her grandfather left a considerable amount of tax debt which I had a really hard time understanding how she inherited because my understanding is that the debt isn't her responsibility. Back taxes of a deceased person aren't necessarily her responsibility until the estate can be settled. And then once the estate is settled and, and assets are sold to pay the back taxes, that might then become her responsibility if she started making payments on the debt. But it's just assumed that she's taken on the debt, which didn't make sense to me, although my knowledge of how you inherit debt or if you do inherit debt is kind of foggy. But either way, this is where I think it would help if I was a magical romance land attorney. And then not only could I write the wills where I compel people to marry, but then I can also do the wills where people inherit things good or bad and then have to deal with them as conflict. The other thing that I struggled with with this book with the heroine was that there's a letter from her mother and a check for, you know, a Brazilian dollars, a Brazilian being um, an enormous amount of money. So there's the Brazilian dollar check in the envelope and she puts it in a drawer. And she's suspicious that her father's around, but she doesn't put it, or actually, no, it's not even on a drawer. It's like on top of her bureau. And she's suspicious that her father is nearby, but she doesn't call the cops. She thinks she, she downplays her own, wow, I have a really bad feeling that my father is nearby. And I've always had this bad feeling right before he shows up, but I'm not going to do anything about that right now. And I'm also going to leave the check just sitting on the bureau because that's totally a good idea. <sighs> And the half-sister comes back and doesn't understand why she hasn't opened the envelope, cashed the check, or read the letter. And the heroine is stuck in this really stubborn inertia where she won't read the letter and she won't cash the check. She just leaves it on the bureau and ignores her negative feeling and focuses on the temporary fling she's having with her boss. And at that point, it wasn't a question of liking or disliking the heroine. It was just I couldn't understand her. She didn't make any sense to me. The other thing that really bothered me, and I've noticed this more and more in books, and I'm really curious if, if those of you who are listening have also noticed this. The hero establishes his attraction to the heroine in the course of, of his um, narration or the story from his point of view by talking about all the heroine's body parts that he would like to come in contact with his own. Like he keeps thinking about her long creamy legs and how they would be more than long enough to wrap around her waist. Now, most adult legs probably could unless she was a dwarf, but it doesn't say that she is. Secondly, that's kind of gross. I just, it, it didn't strike me as sexy or interesting or sexually alluring. It struck me as objectifying her into a bunch of body parts that he wanted to picture giving him sexual satisfaction. And in those moments where he's focusing on her legs or her breasts or whatever, instead of instead of feeling like he was looking at her and admiring her and increasingly noticing different things about her that he hadn't noticed before, he was just sort of like, oh, legs, 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 legs. I wish to have sex with that person with those legs. And then there's, it, it's like she's not a person. She's a couple body parts that he's noticing at that moment. And it really turned me off, which was unfortunate because I really wanted to like that book. The other thing that I read is a Hanukkah novella by Krista McHugh. And it is in the anthology... Um, a very scandalous holiday. There are four stories in this anthology, but because I really, really, really wanted to read this one, I read this one first, and I think it's the second one. It's called um, 
Eight Lights, I think it's called. And it is set during World War II in Belgium. The hero is a doctor and the heroine is a nurse. And she is very open about the fact that she's Jewish. He is very secretive about the fact that he is Jewish. Not secretive like he's hiding it. He just doesn't proclaim it or wear any outward signs of his faith, whereas she wears a Star of David, in particular because they are battling the Nazis and they are aware of what the Nazis are doing to Jews. She has a bit of a crush on him, but decides to take action and sort of make it known to him that she has uh, super friendly feelings towards him by inviting him to light the Hanukkah menorah. Her family sent her this tiny, tiny aluminum menorah, and she has candles, and she invites him to light the lights and sing the blessings. And each night of Hanukkah is a chapter in the story. And the different things that happen in the book parallel actual events in World War II and show their developing relationship and how their courtship could proceed under the you know, military supervision and the military rules. I really liked this story. A, because there's a decided lack of stories involving faith that isn't Christian faith. And I particularly like the idea of, of stories set over Hanukkah because Hanukkah is eight days long. And while it's a minor festival in the Jewish liturgical sense, it's more well-known because of its often proximity to Christmas. Although this year it's on top of Thanksgiving, so it's Thanksgiving. And I'm still, I'm still mad that I did not think to commission and publish an anthology of Thanksgiving romance novellas. But, you know, Thanksgiving and Hanukkah will, will coincide again, I think, in 70 or 90,000 years from now. So we'll do it then, okay? But either way, I really liked the story because of the time period, because of the setting, because the fact that it's in World War II in Belgium during the war fighting the Nazis gives an immediacy to the reasoning behind the heroine's pursuit of the hero and also her questions about how they approach their Judaism differently. And it's also a really interesting portrayal of the time period. And that's all for this week's podcast. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Future podcasts will include Jane and me interviewing people, talking about romance novels, and generally disagreeing with one another. If you have ideas or suggestions, or you think one of us is really wrong about something, you can email us at sbjpodcast at gmail.com. You can also send or leave us a message, rather, at our Google Voice number, which is 1201371-DBSA. Don't be scared. You should call. Don't forget to give us your name or your handle or whatever name you go by online and where you're calling from. So when we work your message into an upcoming podcast, you can go, oh my God, the sound of my own voice is so weird. Yes, I know. Me too. And I edit this for like two hours and listen to myself and think, gosh, I sound weird. This is from Sassy Outwater, this music, but you knew that. This is Caravan Palace and this is called Cottonheads. I'll have links to the album and the song in the entry that goes with this podcast, along with all the books we talked about and random other pieces of information, like a message from our sponsor, Penguin. Woohoo! This podcast is brought to you by Intermix, publishers of Unexpectedly Yours by Jeannie Moon, a forever love story. Caroline Rossi needs to reinvent her life because being a geotechnical engineer has not proved to be a guy magnet. She's never had the opportunity to let her hair down and have fun, but when a chance encounter with her big sister's brother-in-law, millionaire Josh Campbell, leads to a night of unexpected passion, Caroline starts engineering an arrangement that will give them both what they want. You can find Unexpectedly Yours on sale on November 19th everywhere ebooks are sold. Wherever you are and whatever you're doing, Jane and I wish you the very best of reading. Thank you for listening.